Howdy, folks, and welcome to the Womble Bond Dickinson Ramble, 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 Ramble. It's the Womble Bond Dickinson Ramble. Welcome, everybody, to the 27th and final edition of the first season of the Womble Bond Dickinson Ramble podcast. Welcome to the end, folks. Wow. At least the beginning of the end. 27. Uh, 27. I, that's that's uh, quite the number. I mean, looking back, I remember when we passed five, and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe we've done five podcasts, and here we are at the end of the year with 27 Almost 27 under our belt. 27 under our belt. Thousands of listens. It's incredible what we've accomplished. And we're going to cover a bunch of really important stuff, including the big reassigned number database that the FCC has just sent out literally today. Uh, we're going to change the name of that database. Uh, but before we get there, I thought that it would be great to just pause a moment, uh, maybe be a little self-indulgent, which we try to avoid <laughs> around here, uh, and, and look back at what we've accomplished and ask ourselves kind of what was our favorite moment um, and, and share with our, our listeners maybe some behind-the-scenes uh, the uh, intel. But before we do that, let's introduce ourselves. Who do we have? Of course, this is the czar, Eric Troutman. Who else do we have? We have Queenie here. This is the Grand Duchess. And the Baron. So I'm going to go first on this trip down memory lane. I mean, recognizing, think about what we've accomplished in terms of who we've spoken to uh, on the Ramble this year. We've had uh, huge plaintiff's attorneys, uh, Abbas Kazarunian, the godfather of class actions, joining us twice in studio, Jay Edelson, Tav Gomez, the, ho the head of, of uh, the Consumer Protection Department at Morgan & Morgan. Um, we've had Todd Friedman uh, and even a guy like Jeff Lohman, who's been so, so very prolific with filings recently. Uh, and then on the defense side, we've had like all the big players, the big names in TCPA land. Of course, we've got Tonya today from Wilson Sonsini. Looking forward to that interview. Uh, we've had in the past Becca Walquist and Christine Riley from Manat. Uh, we've had um, the Troutman Sanders crew of, of mm -hmm. Chad Fuller and Virginia Flynn Bell. Uh, and then you think about all the um, amazing players, uh, ancillary players, shall we call them, or, or vendors uh, that yeah. do big stuff here in TCPA land. Uh, the UMail uh, call blocking app folks, the HIA folks, um, Paul Geese from BoApps, the ringless voicemail providers. It, it is incredible. Uh, the huge catalog of interviews uh, and insights that we've been able to bring this year. I, I just think it's fantastic stuff that we've done. What do you think? Uh, I think you're absolutely right. I look back on the last uh, 26 episodes that we've completed with a great sense of pride. Um, really a who's who of, of TCPA players in terms of the folks that we brought on to this podcast to provide our audience with really great insights on all the most relevant developments going on in the law. And, I, you know, I, I, real, I feel very, very good about the, you know, what we've been able to kind of put out there and provide um, for everyone who's impacted by this law. So uh, bring us all the way back to our very first episode. I think that was one of my favorite episodes. Um, having Betty Temple, uh, the CEO of Wombobon Dickinson, on our podcast was absolutely just, you know, so wonderful. Uh, she was very articulate and she, you know, uh, laid out, you know, the goals and visions for this firm, for our team. And so that was 
one of my favorite episodes. Um, but I also want to share share a little with you guys of the behind the scenes of that first episode. So we actually, <laughs> so you guys know that uh, the Baron was the one that re- recorded uh, the the Ramble song, but we actually have another version where the Czar sings oh, like, <laughs> dongle, like something about the dongle. Oh, yeah. the do- yes, that's, that's, that's true. Little little known fact: the Ramble was first named the Dongle, uh, and we we changed the name for reasons you could imagine. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, for for those of us listeners who don't know what a dongle is, that thing that comes with your iPhone that helps you connect your lightning. Um, input to a regular AUX cord. So, uh, so uh, Queenie, what was your favorite moment from the, from the podcast past? Well, first, I just want to say you reading that list of our guests just gave me like warm, tingly feelings inside. I don't know if that it did it to anyone else, but that was really cool to just hear that list. Um, my favorite moment by far was the boogeyman, um, Jay Edelson himself. Um, I'm really looking forward to having him back in 2019 and going to Chicago to, you know, play that volleyball tournament that he promised us we're going to play. So, I mean, that was my favorite moment. You know, I was just going to say, we've had so many great moments and challenges, right? We've had Christine challenge us to throw the big mansion party. (laughs) Jay, I do owe him a big volleyball tournament. Um, And, you know, uh, Mike Greenwald, who I haven't mentioned yet, right, of Greenwald Davidson, you know, huge player in the TCPA landscape. Of course, I owe him a ping pong tournament. Uh, so many like fun, interesting little little nuances. Yeah. What did you got, Artine? What was your favorite moment? All right. So I'll, I'll actually I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little indulgent. And I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two. That is indulgent. <laughs> I'll, I'll allow it. So uh, a little known fact uh, about Greenwald. Speaking of him, is that if if folks who who listen um, will remember that we had a great little kind of side discussion about our favorite professional wrestlers. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about the Hulk and, you know, uh, Andre the Giant. And I had mentioned that one of my favorite wrestlers when I was a kid was Razor Ramon. And Greenwald, being, being the guy that he is, uh, ended up sending me a, a Razor Ramon t-shirt after, after we recorded that thing. And actually, I didn't know it was him. This mystery package arrived. Uh, and I opened it up and randomly I was like working on a brief and you know someone came by with a package I was like oh what's this I opened it up and I was like it's a Razor Ramon t-shirt <laughs> <laughs> I'm like who in the world sent this so I emailed Greenwald I was like dude is this you oh. he's like yeah I was like I hope you like it I was like I love it thank you thank you man and so that, that was such a cool moment for me on TCPA land to have the opportunity not only to bring on a guest but connect with them uh, learn about them a little bit on a on a personal level and, and relate some kind of fun stuff. And that's I think what makes this this podcast so unique and so fun is that we cover serious stuff involving the law, but at the same time, we just have a lot of fun doing it. Didn't Sergey Lemberg make pickles and send them to Tav or something too? Oh, like, we I... asked him to. I don't know who he actually <laughs> did, but yeah, Sergey, Sergey, aka the pickle maker of TCP. Pickle right? maker. God, we've got a pickle maker. I forgot about that. Is that, that. his official title, pickle maker? Uh, it's. Uh, you know what? He has not been anointed, so it's his unofficial title. Oh, was there another one, by the way, Baron? You said you had two. You know, there was, and and just generally, it was when a, a boss came on. I mean, I th- that guy was. He's just something, and hearing his stories, especially about the reactions, both both pre marks, right? Uh, him getting you know all kinds of crazy, you know, I don't I don't know necessarily threatening, but he you know, was getting some some mean communications from other other plaintiffs lawyers and then afterwards what the reactions were and some of the stuff we had to cut because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. it wasn't uh, appropriate for the air oh. but uh, but it was uh, it was that was always fun I, I loved uh, 
a boss's analogy that he's like he's like uh, he is to TCPA TCPA land what Tom Hanks is to SNL. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. I, I think <laughs> I think my favorite um, was probably Shy Deveretsky. Yeah. I mean, the guy was just brilliant, and he was. Uh, what, what was it that you said, Queenie, at the end of that interview? The first time you've ever seen anyone so imp- oh. be so impressed with anyone not named the czar? Correct. <laughs> that is exactly what I said. Uh, no, the guy was amazing. I just I remember asking him about his reaction when he found out about ACA International that he had won. And I just thought that story uh, was so good. And you should hear that story, folks. And if you haven't, I would encourage you to go back. And while we're on this hiatus, it'll be about five or six weeks. We'll be back. Uh, I would say probably late January with new material. But in the meantime, it's going to be a long, cold winter. You're going to be uh, snowed in uh, and looking for uh, excitement and enticement. And nothing is more exciting than learning about the TCPA uh, from the Ramble uh, crew. And I, we'd encourage you, go back and, and re-listen to all these great moments. Um, literally every major hitter uh, on the plaintiff side and most of them on the defense side have joined us. And you owe it to yourself if you practice in this area to listen to these things. Um, and, you know, again, we look forward to bringing you new material next year. And, but until we do, let's finish this thing off, folks. Uh, what do we want to break down? How about this humongous, humongous FCC development? So nice for them to drop it today, the day we're recording the final podcast of season one. So this is great. Thank you, FCC, for the gift. Um, this is ostensibly the creation of a re- reassigned number database. Uh, but of course, if you look at the order, and you all have or will, or at least read my article on it, you know that the database does not actually track reassigned numbers at all. In fact, all it tracks, all it will provide is a date, the date of the uh, permanent uh, dis, what's the word I'm disconnect. looking for? Disconnect. The permanent disconnect. So we're going to call it the permanent disconnect data da- database. Permanent disconnect database. The PDD, which is what it really is. So the PDD, you have to understand how this thing works. It is, it is a fairly complicated and cumbersome thing for a caller to utilize. Because a caller has to have in its possession the phone number that you're trying to call. That's easy. But you also have to have the date the date that you last reached your customer or the date that you were last confident that that phone number belonged to your customer. Now, what does that last one mean? What does it mean to be confident that your number belongs to a customer? I don't know, Uh, but you're going to have to have some kind of evidence or information sufficient to convince a jury that you were confident in good faith on that date uh, that it was a number belonging to your customer. But set aside for a second what it means to be confident, and let's look at what you have to do in order to use this database. You have to have a list of all of the numbers that you want to scrub, and with each number, you have to have an associated date. I'm imagining this is going to be like a comma-separated uh, Excel format or some other format, flat file maybe, where you've got a phone number and you've got a date. And that date uh, has to be the most recent date that you knew that you could reach the customer. So that means you, caller, need to maintain, starting today, a database of all the numbers and all the last time you felt confident that you could reach the Uh, customer on that phone number dates. Then you will need to, uh, using a batch process that the administrator of the PDD is going to be required to have available, submit that data to the PDD and the PDD is going to come back to you, uh, the administrator of the PDD is going to come back to you with one of two things, a yes or a no. That's all you're going to get. And a yes in this context is bad. A yes means yes the number has been permanently disconnected since the date that you provided. A no in this context is good. 
A no means that the number has not been permanently disconnected since the date that you provide. So you, the caller, have a phone number. You have the date that you believe is the date that you're confident that number belonged to the customer or the last date that you reached the customer. You provide that to the administrator of the PDD. The administrator of the PDD will come back and say, yep, it's been reassigned, or no, it hasn't been reassigned. So you, caller, then have to have some way to operationalize that data when you get it back. You have to have a process in place where if you get a yes, it's going to scrub out that phone number uh, and make sure that you don't ever call it again. Because if you do, guess what? Now you're knowingly calling a number that is potentially reassigned. There's another big component to this database that we should keep in mind, which is that uh, the carriers now have to wait at least 45 days to reassign a phone number. And that's phenomenal because today, guess what? There is no deadline, mm -hmm. no minimum. So if I get my number disconnected today, it could get reassigned tomorrow, and all my debt collectors could be calling somebody else, and those folks could be cashing in with TCPA claims. Uh, starting today, the requirement is now that these carriers have to wait 45 days before they can reassign that number. And that, in and of itself, is going to be a really big deal. So let's just pause there. I mean, what do you guys think about this whole 45-day aging thing? I thought that was a really big, a big, really big move. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the the better and more important parts of this um, to avoid a situation, as you pointed out, where literally you could be calling your customer on one day and committing a TCPA violation, supposedly, you know, potentially on the next. Um, it, it, the the buffer there is 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 a very very good move, which will hopefully give some much needed breathing room to business to be able to um, come up with a compliance regime that will um, effectively allow them to avoid reassign number calling. Well, I'm just kind of interested in how they came up with that 45-day number because um, for me, I would have probably liked to see like a longer period, maybe 60 to 90 days to have, you know, more buffer and, and more time to for the companies to find out that these numbers were reassigned. I think 45 days is okay, but would have been great to see a longer period. There yeah. needed to be a comment of the Grand Duchess in response to the uh, public notice that they sent. <laughs> out so, and I think maybe I think it was a situation where it was like the consumer sites, like we want very little time. And business was, I think, pushing for about 69 days. And I, from what I understand, FC just kind of split the baby on the top. Yeah, there, there was baby splitting, but the carriers actually were the ones that, that wanted less time because there is, um, there's warehousing costs to keeping a number in storage, and there's also uh, number oh, um, wow. demand uh, supply issues for, that some carriers will have in some instances. Because remember, carriers are only assigned specific blocks of phone numbers that they can make use of. And some of those carriers will then sell those phone numbers to sub-carriers to use those numbers. But there is, believe it or not, a marketplace for these numbers. There's, there's a real business reason why there's a churn rate uh, for some of these numbers. So, um, you know, it's something to keep in mind. But I agree with you, Grand Duchess. 45 days is good, but it, but it could have been longer. Um, so breaking down a couple other pieces of this order, uh, people are going to want to know, <clears throat> well, how much does it cost? Well, there's no assigned um, cost yet. It is clear that it will be a pay-to-play, a pay-per-view. So every time you ask or, or make a query, you're going to have to pay for that query. Um, the administrator is going to have to determine the cost. The administrator has not yet been appointed. Uh, but the FCC is predicting it's going to be less than one penny per query. Um, we don't have a fixed cost, but it's going to be less than a cent. So it's going to be fairly cheap to use. Although, as we just talked about, it's going to actually be pretty difficult to use because you're going to have to be maintaining your data in a very specific way and very specifically formatted on an enterprise basis or at least on a business line basis or at least creating policies on an enterprise basis to be implemented on a business line basis to make sure that these scrubs are taking place on a monthly basis. 
Now, why is it monthly? Well, that's the requirement under the PDD is the carriers have to provide their information. Again, all they're providing is the phone number and the date of the last PDD, last permanent disconnect, um, to the administrator. And that is going to happen every month on the 15th of the month. So, you know, if you're a call center operator, you probably want to have your scrub in process to track uh, that and do your scrub on the 16th of every month, as an example. Um, and now, of course, the last point to keep in mind is, okay, well, uh, what do we get if we do this? Uh, and there is, uh, there's two things you get. One is, theoretically, if the database is accurate, then you can prevent uh, calling recycled phone numbers. Now, notice, there's a big gap here, right? Because the data that's being provided is so limited, and that was a choice by the commission. The, the commission was a, afraid of, of data privacy concerns and did not want the carriers providing subscriber information that could be misused um, or get lost. And so you're not, your subscriber information is not being provided. Your name is not being provided. The name of the subscriber is not being provided to the administrator. All that's being provided is the phone number and the date of the last disconnect. Why does that matter? Well, if you're a caller and you want to know, hey, am I calling the wrong number? The PDD is not going to help you because it's not going to tell you whether or not your customer is the subscriber or your customer is the regular user of that phone. All it's going to tell you is whether or not the phone number has disconnected since the last time you talked to the customer. So if the customer gave you the wrong number in the first instance mm -hmm. or your agent fat-fingered a number in the first instance, this database is not going to help you at all. Uh, and in fact, the commission was very clear that they viewed this database as a supplement, not uh, something that's going to supplant current subscriber databases that are out there in the market. Uh, so that's something to keep in mind as well. I, I think that the FCC specifically and intentionally was limited with the database, uh, mostly for data privacy, but also to protect some of these subscriber, these, these vendors out there. What do you think, uh, Queenie? Well, I tend to agree with the FCC for not providing the subscriber information to protect the privacy rights. I mean, the FCC, you know, they're clearly, that's what they're focused on. And as much as, you know, that's unfortunate for businesses, I think it was the right move on their part. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. Um, so back to the safe harbor, though, and let's just break down this last piece. There wasn't going to be a safe harbor. The original second report, or the original report and order did not have a safe harbor. Uh, Commissioner O'Reilly crowed in his separate statement that, that you know the safe harbor was put in because uh, he requested it. And I threw him a big party on TCPA land and thanked him. <laughs> um, but, Stars born. Uh, but, but, uh, but I'll tell you, uh, you know, having now read the safe harbor, which wasn't, of course, in the original proposed draft and only showed its face in the final order, it, it's kind of not much of a safe harbor. Um, yeah, you know, if you abide by the requirements and you have you you submit your query and you provide the phone number and you provide the last date of confidence and you get back a no uh, and you call that number and it really was reassigned yes you're gonna get protection probably I say probably because you should seek counsel before you rely on the safe harbor as drafted in the actual rule give me a call if you've got questions but there's a there's a trap there but assuming that it applies the way I think it's intended to apply, um, you still don't get protected if you, for instance, wait 60 days. Uh, you have to do this on a monthly basis. Uh, and there's no protection uh, if uh, you don't operate in good faith, or, or sorry, if you make a mistake, right? So you might have a good faith policy and procedure to run this every 30 days, let's say. But, you know, something messes up and your batch process doesn't go out one month when it's supposed to, but you've got a good written policy that you normally follow. There's no good faith exception for your mistakes, which is really unfortunate. 
and, and something to keep in mind as, as you decide to use this database or not. Um, but I, I encourage you to take a look at uh, at the actual language of the safe harbor and you know consult an attorney. Give me a call. Uh, there's some important stuff lurking in there that you should really keep in mind. Uh, any other thoughts on the PDD? It's a big development. I'm glad we got to talk about that here in our last podcast. Yeah. How, oh, Go ahead. how long do you think till the safe harbor is out? Um, the safe harbor is out? What do you mean? I mean, like, when do you think they'll implement? It's implemented right now, Queenie. Right now? Yeah, no, the, the safe harbor rules have been oh, implemented okay. immediately. No, it's a good point. Um, so in terms of timing, right, because right. there's various different pieces. Uh, right now, today, as we speak, the carriers are required, other than if you're a very small carrier with less than 100,000 uh, users, then you're not required, but everybody else is required to immediately start tracking uh, the dates of permanent disconnect, okay? Uh, everyone that is a caller should right now begin the process of identifying phone numbers and dates of confidence, okay? Because you're going to need that once the list actually launches. We talked that the list is not going to actually launch probably for about a year. Uh, actually, I don't know if I said that yet. It's probably going to be about a year because they still need to go through the process of identifying an administrator. Uh, they need to go through some technical issues as to how the database is going to be set up. And then the administrator is going to have to put together uh, the fee plan. Um, and all of this is going to be overseen by the by the, the FCC's bureaus. Uh, and you know they're predicting it's going to be about a year. Okay, So a year from now is when the safe harbor is actually going to come into effect as a practical from a practical perspective, because that is when you're going to actually be able to use the safe harbor, because that's when you're going to actually be able to use the database. But technically, the safe harbor is on the books right now in 64, um, uh, in Title uh, 24 uh, CFR 64-100. So it, it's on the books. It's just not something you can utilize until it actually comes out. And since you brought that up, um, the FCC rejected any other safe harbor. Meaning if you are using a, another subscriber vendor or database, a different database that you're scrubbing off of to identify recycled numbers uh, and to prevent wrong numbers, uh, even though the FCC was asked to consider a safe harbor for those uh, good businesses using these vendors, the FCC said no, we're not going to give that, that safe harbor, uh, essentially because the FCC was unconvinced that these subscribers' uh, databases are um, su sufficiently comprehensive to justify the safe harbor. Uh, so, it was, I mean, they weren't ki they weren't quite throwing mud on the vendors, but they were just saying, look, we're, we're not sold. Um, so the commission is essentially saying, if you want a safe harbor, you have to use our database and nobody else's. Uh, that's a good question, though. All right, well, let's move on to other developments. Grand Duchess, what do we got? So uh, we have another million-member TCPA class settlement that was approved uh, just this week. Um, this was the Bowman versus Art Van Furniture case um, out in the Eastern District of Michigan. Uh, so in Bowman, the defendant had allegedly left a bunch of voicemails regarding a VI party at their furniture store. I wonder what a VIP party at a furniture store is like. Probably uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump. We're gonna let you jump on the beds, folks. <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. I like that. That's better than a mansion party. <laughs> um, but anyway, so they were leaving messages about this VIP party, and then the messages were left allegedly using a pre-recorded voice without consent. Um, so uh, Art Van Furniture allegedly sent about 1.1 million of these messages, and then the settlement figure was about 5.8 million, so that's about $5.10 per class member, which is in line with similar settlements. So Yeah. I mean, you had, you had an objector come in and say, well, that's just not enough because... 
the statutory damages for a million calls. Well, that's five hundred seven million dollars. Well, first of all, I don't think that furniture company is going to be capable of satisfying a judgment of that amount. I don't know. I might. I'm just kind of speculating. Um, but still, uh, the court was absolutely right that five bucks a class member is very much the market for TCPA settlements. And there's a number of reasons for that. Um, because, ge I mean, generally speaking, when you're settling a class like this, um, you want to kind of capture as, as, as many claims as possible to get rid of them once and for all. And a lot of times you're going to be capturing claims that don't necess aren't necessarily legit claims, right? Aren't necessarily claims on which there's liability. Uh, and so uh, that, you know, that kind of... Uh, you know, helps in terms of the, 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 the raw, the gross number of potential class members uh, and total settlement figure amount. Now, that's not to say, though, because usually these are claims made settlements that everyone's necessarily going to get five bucks ahead. That's not going to be the case. It'll probably end up being more than that because you're not going to have every single potential class member making a claim on that. So, um, you know, good job for the, by the court recognizing that five bucks ahead is in fact the uh, you know an appropriate amount for a TCPA settlement. Um, so yeah, why don't we go ahead and throw it to uh, um, Queenie here. I think you've got another class action development. I sure I do. This one, well dare I say this is probably, this case makes me think that this is a one time I'd probably be okay receiving illegal telemarketing calls. Um, this is a case of Crack Hour versus Dish where Dish Networks nightmare continues uh, where the court awarded class counsel 20.4 million in attorney's fees Yowzer. for the <laughs> this is following a 60 million dollar judgment <laughs> oh boy so huge huge attorney's fees in the crack hour case but that case went on for so mm -hmm. long and there was so many so much activity by the defense i mean i mean this is i mean this is tooth and nail on another level uh and so i don't know I, you know, did, did that make sense to you? Did it make sense to me? No, yeah. it did not make sense to me. Um, I think uh, the czar broke it down in his article that came out to about $2,000 an hour. The czar, do you get paid that much? <laughs> it depends on the client. <laughs> wow. And so they closed um, that. Am I getting underpaid here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm basically working for free at this point. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> So uh, class counsel here, they saw a third of the judgment um, and they saw a reasonable and the court found that that was reasonable. And they claimed to spend approximately 8,500 hours litigating this case and two hours of expected time for appeals. Two hours? Two thousand. Did I say go. two hours? Two thousand. <laughs> um, the court essentially found that it was reasonable because of the complexity and the risk prosecuting a case through certification and a jury verdict. Yeah. I mean, it did point that out was, that the, the same attorneys had lost. Uh, similar cases in the past and you know I guess no risk no reward but man what a payday yep all right well you know I think something unique is happening um, to my fire line twice well first of all what's happening the fire line is smoking well I feel fire like it's even more smoking. than that now it's the holiday season and we're lining up two guests so that fire line's shooting out like holiday spirit <laughs> and hot cocoa yeah, and well, you know yule logs and all kinds of stuff we're hanging stockings by the fire line today <laughs> uh, alright so folks bear with us we're going to go right from one interview to the next first live via the Womble Bond Dickinson fire line we have none other this is an incredible guest we have for you Peggy Daly, the managing director of the Berkeley Research Group. Hey, Peggy, welcome to the shop. So, Peggy, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do uh, specifically with regards to the TCPA and how Berkeley Research Group helps out uh, defendants? 
Absolutely, uh, sure. Um, I, I lead a team here at, at Berkeley Research Group that uh, specializes in uh, a couple of areas that are re really helpful in TCPA litigation. Uh, one, we have uh, data analytics experts. Uh, so my team is SQL jockeys, and uh, we uh, are able to delve deeply into uh, the complex data that gets produced in, in these kinds of cases, the dialer data, the account notes, the marketing data, the consent data. And, and so we're, we're able to make sense of all of that and, and help determine uh, how it can be relevant in uh, class certification proceedings, for example. In addition, we have a, uh, a licensed private detective agency here, and we've got uh, a group of, uh, of uh, private eyes that do uh, very deep background investigations, asset searching, um, due diligence on people, on companies, on corporate histories, on product history, et cetera, and uh, doing the background investigations on the expert witnesses, getting their histories, as well as those of uh, witnesses, and, and sometimes the products as well, the, uh, the dialer systems, et cetera, uh, has, been, uh, has been really helpful to our clients uh, in, in lots of cases. Well, let's set aside the data issues for now, because I believe that data should never be produced pre-certification, so all that hard work that you're doing should never even happen because the defense lawyer shouldn't let it happen. Uh, but let's set that aside for the moment. What I really want to talk to you about, um, I saw you speaking at the TCPA Summit in, in St. Pete's a couple weeks back, uh, and I was riveted by the detective work that you folks do. Uh, particularly with regards to expert witnesses and with regards to professional plaintiffs. Um, and I just, I think my listeners, our listeners would love to hear some anecdotes and war stories about the experts that we all know and love, guys like uh, Snyder or, or bigger staff. I mean, what, what have you, if anything, discovered about these folks over the course of the, of the many years you've been doing this? Well, I think it's very interesting um, to, to look into experts in any kind of case. Um, years ago, we started doing, well before I started working on TCPA cases, uh, we started doing backgrounds on expert witnesses. Um, and it, it's amazing how often you find exaggerated credentials, uh, certifications claimed that are no longer active or, or were never awarded to begin with. Um, all kinds of credibility issues that come into play, um, the claims of, of education that, that aren't entirely uh, substantiated. We've had a number of cases where folks have, have claimed to have degrees from various universities where they just don't. They might have taken a weekend, sh a weekend course there. Um, you know, typical kinds of things you see uh, in terms of sketchy expert witnesses, it, uh, you can pretty much say it's, you know, by, by a factor of 10 in the TCPA uh, uh, consumer class action world. Um, you just tend to see a lot more exaggerations um, and, and, and histories claimed that of, of professional credentials that just aren't there. Um, so we've, we've, been, we've been able to dig into quite a lot. Um, with respect to the TCPA side, um, uh, there's something that uh, I, I've, I've been calling mission creep uh, in terms of the credentials of the folks that um, we've been running across. Uh, somebody may have um, may have experience in one particular area. I mean, Jeff Hansen, for example, um, started life as a computer forensics expert, um, but then claims in his depositions and in his in his work uh, to have um, 
extensive experience in consulting with companies on auto dialers. Uh, but when push came to shove and he had to testify uh, relating to what that actually was, it turned out that the only uh, outside third party that had ever uh, hired him was a guy named Conrad Braun, um, who dresses up like a bumblebee and has been convicted multiple times of a felony, <laughs> of, of various felonies, black, I think it was blackmail, uh, uh, and, 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 and things like that. But a lot of that kind of, um, those, those broad claims of expertise you know, just weren't dug into uh, in other cases. Um, he claims, for example, and we're still talking about Hansen, claimed that he had taught thousands of students to be computer engineers. But when we, we dug into his background a little bit further, we were able to identify the fact that, that um, that school, where he was the director of training, was closed down by the state of Illinois. I'm sorry, the state of California, uh, because it failed to adequately train students, and it went bankrupt. And it was sued uh, in class action for fraud. Um, so that that credential that he claims uh, as being a, an effective teacher um, is a, is just tarnished, uh, to say the least, with re uh, when when. Uh, when reviewed in the context of the school that it was coming from. And wasn't it the claim that he had taught thousands of students and then really only like 20 of them had actually successfully obtained their credential? Well, what, what, what there, there was a, um, yes, he claims in his, in his CVs that to have taught thousands of students to become computer engineers. And this was a, uh, this is a for-profit, uh, company, uh, educational institution that was teaching people, who was charging a lot of money uh, to get uh, students certified as uh, um, Microsoft certified uh, engineers. And when we dug into the history of that school, one of the things that we found were statements that were made by the class action expert in that case um, who, had sued, who had sued for fraud. And he said that um, he... He, there was a number of um, public statements where he said, I think it was only, with less than 20 students had been actually obtained that, that uh, Microsoft Certified Engineer certification. Um, and, and interestingly enough, that class action lawyer was, the f was the f one of the first people who ever hired Hansen himself um, as, as, a, as an expert witness. Well, that is just really fantastic information, and I know you've got all kinds of additional anecdotes on other TCPA experts, but we can't give away the farm. If you folks out there <laughs> want to learn more about the experts that you face, like Hanson or Snyder or Bigger Staff or any of these folks, um, you know, you've got some detectives over at Berkeley Research Group willing to do a, a good job for you. Let, let's change topics, though, because I, I know I want to keep doing anecdotes because this is fun. Uh, my, my producer's eyes got so wide when he started talking about Hanson. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about professional plaintiffs. I, I mean, have you folks had any run-ins or experience with any folks that uh, bring TCPA cases for a living? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the... the um as you as you're well aware, and as I'm sure your listeners are aware, there there are um, uh, frequent flyers uh, in, in terms of uh, plaintiffs in, in in this space, and um, we as a as a, a typical part of the work that we do in our cases will will do some background uh, public records research on the plaintiffs to determine what their history is, uh, and that's just good investigation that I think every every uh, every a lawyer should do uh, on the key witnesses in their cases, whether they're experts or they're their fact witnesses or their their parties, um, 
a good example is uh, we do a lot of work for the uh, big banks, and uh, we had a, a plaintiff who alleged that they were a not a customer. It was a wrong number case, and uh, said that they had received uh, misdirected text. So it was a wrong text case. Um, we did a background of that uh, plaintiff, and we were able to uh, determine that she had been involved in an insurance fraud ring in the past, and that not only that, she had previously filed for bankruptcy. And she listed the bank, our client, as a creditor while <laughs> at, the, right at the same time claiming that she's never been a customer. Um, and that's just sitting out there in plain view for anybody who wants to look uh, at, at, the, at the public record. And it takes some time. You know, you have, to, you, have to, you have to look at their civil history, their civil litigation history. You have to pull that. You then have to find the bankruptcy, and then you have to read the bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, but that can be very, very worth it um, because that case went away. Um, you know, as soon as you get some of that type of information in it, particularly if you're finding that the plaintiffs are lying to the plaintiffs' counsel, um, that's always fun. Then, yeah, they go they they go away. I mean, the, the plaintiffs' lawyers don't like being lied to. Nobody want, likes being lied to, um, and and that kind of a witness isn't going to stand up. Well, so, I, I think yeah. that's great. Any other anecdotes you can share, or <laughs> or should I just direct folks to to come your way when they when they have an inkling that these uh, their plaintiff might be a repeat flyer? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. There's there's certain things that are, are, are definitely um, it, a lot of it depends on which which circuit you're in uh, in terms of how much discovery you can get. We we had a case uh, with uh, Charvat, and Charvat has been involved in, in so many cases. Uh, he was actually directed by a court to put his number on the do not uh, do not call list. And you know those are great kinds. That's that's great kinds of information um, to have. Uh, it, it, walking into a case and walking into a deposition, particularly of of a professional plaintiff. That that's um, fantastic. I love that story. Um, and of course, you know the most famous uh, professional plaintiff of all was Melody Stoops. Um, that uh, I was honored to to be lead counsel that uh, shut that scam down. The the lady that had. Oh, geez. Um, dozens of cell phones and, and collected wrong number calls. Um, had you ever seen anything like that in the past where you've just got somebody running TCPA as a business? Well, well, number one, congratulations on that case. I've actually read that transcript, and it was delicious <laughs> to read. Thank you. The, the, the oral argument transcript, that was so much fun. Like, I, I flew down uh, to... <laughs> It was the middle of, of Pennsylvania. I couldn't even tell you where it was. Couldn't find it on a map. It was somewhere like two hours out of Pittsburgh. And it was me and, and Joe Manning, who, by the way, we have to get on the show at some point. He's a decent fella. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the judge sees these two city slicker lawyers come out, and we just burn the place down, man. We, we just argue, <laughs> argue at the top of our lungs um, it, it, with everything we've got. And the judge was just, he was just so interested uh, in, in the hearing. And he wrote this very lengthy, very thoughtful um uh, opinion <clears throat> that it's very ironic because usually you know if it's a standing determination which this ended up being the standing argument is addressed first because everything else is mooted by the lack of standing uh, but the court just really wanted to give his, its thoughts on all the various arguments presented by the parties and so all, all this long and lengthy history unfortunately didn't really go our way until the very end um, was kind of embedded in the order and then ultimately was dismissed for lack of standing which was by the way, the first Article Three or first dismissal of a TCPA case for lack of Article Three uh, jurisdiction, following Spokio in the country. Um, so it was a uh, really so the, this is a great opinion, and I mean it's, it, it should be standard reading, I think, for anybody who's 
who's doing this work, given the, the, the actually the number of, of professional plaintiffs that we have. One of the big concerns that, that we have, and, and, and it's tricky and expensive to try and prove, is that a lot of these professional plaintiffs are, are, um, are masking their identity uh, and, and inserting their, their uh, you know, going to websites, filling out the form, putting their telephone numbers in to get the call, but then putting in somebody else's name. I mean, we've seen that over and over again. Um, in, the, in the Charvat case, it wasn't his name that was, that was on uh, in the data. It was an, I think it was a neighbor's name or a relative's name. Wow. And, and, it came, and it came from an ISP address somewhere in Portland, and he lives in Ohio. And, you know, it, it, if you're not already um, filtering your, um, your, your phone lists, if you're, if you're, if you're a marketer, or, uh, you should. Uh, for the numbers, there's a, I know there's a couple of companies that maintain lists of the, the numbers that professional plaintiffs are using. Um, to, to make sure that you're not you're not calling them because there there is there are some suspicions out there that 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 may be happening uh, by by some people um, and and you know there is a way to avoid that. Well, your detective work is is awesome and a lot of fun, and I would encourage folks that need a detective, and we all do, uh, to keep you in mind. <laughs> uh, but let's circle back to data. And again, I don't want to talk about data analytics. I don't want to talk about databases. I don't want to talk about any of that. I already covered that with Sponsler. And frankly, I'm, it, it's December, and I don't want to think about things like that right now. I want, I want to think about fun things. Uh, and the funniest thing of all, at least to me, uh, is information security. Uh, and I'm going to tee this up by saying that courts have shown a shocking, in my opinion, a shocking disregard for the confidence of consumer privacy, of consumer financial uh, data uh, in these TCPA class actions um, repeatedly now in, in cases um, that where, where valid burden objections are not properly asserted, overruling uh, privacy objections and concerns and essentially requiring the production of extremely sensitive confidential information to uh, third-party experts that, as far as I can tell, operate out of their house sometimes. Um, what are your thoughts, Peggy, uh, from an information security standpoint? What have you seen out there? What, what are, your, what are your, uh, your opinions and views? Well, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you, you've got some of the most sensitive data associated with individual consumers, uh, particularly when you're looking at bank data, uh, or uh, debt collection data. You've got telephone calls with con customer service representatives where people are talking about their health, their uh, why they can't, why their mortgages are about to be uh, foreclosed on. I mean, it's just it's just really sensitive, very very personal information. And you know, the the banks and the large corporations, particularly in regulated industries like healthcare and and financial services, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on their, um, uh, on their data security systems and their IT systems in order to keep that data secure. And then one lawsuit, 20 bucks to file a complaint, and somebody and they, they, you sign a protective order, that, all that data is being turned over to individuals who are maintaining it on hard drives in their living room. Um, and we've had a number of cases where You've, we've, I've got a list of deposition questions we've prepared because we've, we've run into this over and over again, uh, where they're not only, they're not only putting it on a, on a home network with pretty much zero security, but they're putting it on their laptop, they're traveling with it. We oh. had, oh, yeah, there, there was an individual in an eavesdropping case, an expert, um, who was, had all of these recordings on his laptop 
and he was using public Wi-Fi. Um, and, and a lot of the data as well, so you know the uh, the individual account numbers and the names and the addresses and cell phone numbers, all of that, uh, you know, the data security 101 using public Wi-Fi, and then gave a copy of it to another third party that he didn't that he didn't give um, the protective order to, uh, in in order to get their help because he was uh, he he was a little over I think he was a little over his head. Um, I left that case and wrote a series of articles about the problem of expert witnesses and data security and the, the, the questions that you should be asking and the things that you should be demanding because signing a protective order uh, doesn't do it. And it just shocks me that you've got counsel who is purportedly representing the interests of these consumers who then hand over this data to somebody who's maintaining it in their house. Isn't that incredible? Isn't it incredible that in, in, under the guise of protecting consumer privacy, these lawyers are in, engaging in the most invasive, invasive violation of privacy imaginable, at least electronic data privacy, taking this data on a bulk basis most of the time. And courts, unfortunately, uh, on, on a number of occasions now have ordered bulk production as if you're going out and buying, you know, six dozen potatoes and it doesn't matter what potatoes get thrown into the sack. You know, millions of consumers are, are having their data turned over, even though maybe a small sliver of that data is actually going to be relevant to the class one day when it's finally certified. And there is no protection in most of these orders that I've seen. I've seen no protection for information security, no requirement that the data be handled in a way that will assure that it won't be breached. Um, you know, you know in encryption in transit, encryption while stationary, et cetera, et cetera, all these best exactly. practices. Um, it's, it's, it's just... It's just shocking to me. I mean, there's a Massachusetts law that has very specific um, strictures in terms of what you have to do if you're going to be hosting that kind of data in any way. I don't. Uh, there are very few uh, experts that are outside of large firms that have big data security. Um, I think that would pass that. One of which is that you have to have an audit. Uh, I think it was on a yearly, might be a bi-yearly basis from outside third party. I mean, we asked this. This question has been asked of a number of the our opposing experts, and you know the answer is always no, you know no, we don't do that. Uh, so they're violating the law if they have any Massachusetts uh, resident data to begin with, um, and it's it's just it's shocking to me. As, as a result of that, and I'll, I'll give a plug for Sedona right now. I got on the Sedona, uh, Sedona um, uh, Working Group 11, which is working on. Uh, guidelines for expert witnesses um, and, and a series of, of, uh, of specific questions that should be asked um, regarding this data security because it is it is a widespread problem in the consumer uh, class action industry uh, with the data not being adequately protected. Yeah, I think it's critically important, and I, and I really think that defense lawyers need to put a higher premium on it. Whenever we face these issues, especially for a major bank, we've got declarations from the chief privacy officer of those organizations talking about information security protocols and how key this material is. And, and it really is something where uh, outside counsel, defense counsel need to understand and work with appropriate experts so that they can break it down and explain to the court that this is a different issue than burden, than proportionality, than relevance. It's a different issue. It's information security. And even if, court, you find that this data under Rule 26 is, is proportional and relevant and relevant to certification, which it's never, but you know, just assuming that it is, 
right? Even if you make those findings, there's a completely separate issue that you need to consider, which is that millions of people are relying on this defendant to not turn over this data and to maintain it in a safe and secure environment. And you just can't ignore that piece as counsel and as courts. I mean, the courts need to start taking that seriously because God knows how many breaches and how much data on a dark, on the dark web is coming from these good faith. It's not like it's bad faith where the, the experts are you know intentionally losing their material. But, you know, you've got millions and millions and millions of private financial uh, records sitting on somebody's laptop in a, in a coffee shop on Wi-Fi, right? I mean, that is a nightmare scenario, and that is happening. It's just reality. It is. Well, and, and, and they won't even know. I mean, when, when, when large companies have a data breach, uh, you know, they, they, they have uh, data security. They have software, breach uh, notification software that comes in. And, and they get the notice of if there's like a DOD or, or some sort of attack. But you, you don't get that if you, you're just got a little home network and you, you don't have that kind of software on your, on your systems. They don't pass even remotely pass any of the, the base level ISO standards for data security. None of them. Yet if it's being housed by the, the company themselves, you know, you've got to be spending hundreds of millions of dollars to protect it. If you have twenty dollars to sue somebody, it gets handed right over, and you know they they can they can stick it in their um, you know on their lap their unprotected uh, laptop and, and walk away with it. Isn't that incredible? With a flick of the wrist, opposing counsel in these class actions can impose hundreds of thousands of dollars in expense upon a, a defendant who's done nothing wrong, can risk the privacy of millions of customers who have done nothing wrong. Uh, and the courts are, are sitting back and, and abiding by this uh, just with the, a knee-jerk application of the, the federal rules of discovery. And, you know, ultimately I can't blame the courts, right? It, it's got to fall on the shoulders of defense counsel. It's our job to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, and a good resource to help leverage to make sure that doesn't happy, uh, happen, the good folks over at Berkeley Research Group. So, uh, Peggy, you've been a fantastic guest. Um, as is our tradition on the Ramble, this being our last episode of, of um, season one, uh, we always open the floor. And so you can say anything you want, pitch your wares or talk about your vacation plans or whatever, <laughs> whatever you got for us. The powerful Womble Bond Dickinson Ramble platform is all yours, Peggy. What do you got? Oh, my goodness. That's like the biggest softball that's ever been thrown to me. But um, I, think, I think all I'm going to do is say uh, thank you very much for allowing me to, to be on the Ramble. Uh, I, uh, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to talk about what we do. Um, and uh, to the extent, you know, we can ever be helpful to any of your clients out there, give us a call. Well, fantastic, Peggy. You've been a great guest. And to all of you listening in TCPA land, I'm going to throw it back to the Baron and team. And now joining us on the Womble Bond Dickinson Fireline is Tonya Klausner, partner at Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati, and a member of the firm's Internet Litigation and Strategy Group. Tonya, thank you so much for joining us on the Ramble here today. Happy to be here. 
Awesome. So um, you are another one of our TCPA land cohorts. And before we get going with uh, our interview here today, I understand that I have some official business per the czar. I am to anoint you uh, with your (laughs) official TCPA land title. So as the power vested in me, as as the baron of TCPA land, I hereby anoint you, Tonya Klausner, queen of TCPA land. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. No Thank problem. You so much. I've, I've been called the queen of TCPA, and now I'm the queen of TCPA land. That's even better. There you go. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I feel like that's actually probably one of the better um, nicknames or, or uh, alter egos we've given out to some of our TCPA land guests. I know uh, a boss uh, came on, and he was well. He was the Godfather. That was pretty good. But Jay Jay Edelson, uh, he's the bogeyman. So you're doing pretty well here as, as far as <laughs> nicknames are concerned. I'll take queen. There you go. <laughs> okay, great. So if you could just tell the audience a little bit about your practice and your experience with the TCPA. Sure. So I am a litigator here in New York City um, where I have been practicing. I've been with Wilson Sonsini for about 13 years and started doing some TCPA cases when I uh, first joined the firm, um, mainly in the facts area. We have a lot of life sciences clients who send faxes to doctor's offices. So that was my introduction to TCPA, where these the fax cases way back when. Um, and uh, on one of my, one of those cases, we actually um, ended up causing there to be no TCPA class actions in New York for about four or five years at least. Uh, that was the Bonim via Via case, which mm-hmm. you may have read about, we came up with the, the novel argument that because the private right of action is restricted um, to only suits if otherwise permitted by the laws or rules of court of a state, uh, is there a private right of action? And New York procedural law does not allow class actions for statutory damages. Excellent. So we argued that, that you had to read that, that Congress intended to essentially create a state right of action for interstate calls and faxes, um, but that limited it, and, and the Second Circuit agreed with us. Um, unfortunately, that unraveled uh, several years later, um, and we now have TCPA class actions again here in New York. But I actually handle cases around the country, and my practice, while I still have a few fax cases here or there, I tend to have many, many more cases about uh, text messages that we work, my firm works with technology companies, we work with tons and tons of social media companies and app providers, and so uh, I have handled dozens of cases dealing with text messages. Well, that's that seems to be, I mean, a really hot topic in, in TCPA land. Uh, with the changes you're seeing in the way that folks are communicating with one another, I mean, it just seems very natural that we're getting so much more activity on the text message front. Yes, and um, and even you know calls to wireless numbers uh, are. It's getting much trickier because people used to be able to assume that that would only affect calls to consumers, but now many many small businesses use cell phones as their number. Mm-hmm. So um, you can't assume that if you're calling a business that you're calling a landline. Yeah, and and really, it, it's so interesting too. Um, with respect to your Avaya case, I mean, the TCPA is so interesting in so many different respects. Uh, primary for me is that it's it's this area of the law where you can really just be on the cutting edge 
of so many different neat and and novel legal issues. And, and your case in New York be, being you know a prime example of that. Um, it certainly is something that helps me keep very engaged and very interested in this in this area of the law. Well, it's always changing, which is, you know, I like to say to associates when I <laughs> ask them to help on the cases, you know, these cases, they're not necessarily the sexiest case in the world if you're dealing with a TCPA class action, but they, the law is always changing and you can make creative arguments. So that makes it very fun. It does. It does. I mean, my inner law nerd always rejoices whenever we get these kinds of issues, you know, uh, and that, you know, if you're, if you're a law nerd like me, then I, I, I can certainly, I think we can relate to that. Yes. And I, I mean, the law nerd in me is really excited that the Supreme Court granted cert in the PDR network case. Um, the, the issue being the, you know, sort of the intersection between Chevron deference and the Hobbs Act. And yeah. does the Hobbs Act trump so, such that a court is required to follow an agency interpretation of a statute, even if the statute is clear and unambiguous, and that the agency's interpretation is at odds with the plain language of the statute. It's something that has driven me crazy uh-huh. <laughs> in TCPA land over the last, you know, 10 to 15 years even. Just, um, you know, I had one case in Chicago, a text messaging case for an app provider, and the judge actually said, if I wasn't bound by the Hobbs Act, I would agree with your argument. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's, it's amazing. When that cert um, order came down, it was so thrilling to see the Supreme Court stepping in on an issue arising out of the TCPA, but man, is it has the potential to have some very broad-reaching implications because at its core, it just deals with the balance of powers between, um, you know, administrative uh, agencies and the judiciary. Right. And and the, the way that the Hobbs Act has been applied, in my mind, is just completely wrong. Um, for one thing, you know, we work a lot of startups. What if the company didn't exist at the time the agency issued the ruling? Mm-hmm. So, because basically what some courts have said is you have to appeal the agency's ruling then, and you have, I believe, maybe 60 days. It's a very short period of time after the ruling comes out in which to notice an appeal to the, the circuit court. If the company didn't even exist at the time, that means it effectively it has no ability to challenge an agency order. Yeah. I mean, just to make an argument that, that the, the law means something other than what an agency said before it even exi- the company even existed. Well, that's when we get to step into our handy-dandy time machine and go back in time and petition the FCC, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Well, you have, like, you, have to go, you, right, you have to file a petition for some kind of clarifying ruling and then appeal from that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is actually you know, how uh, we ended up with the ACA case. Yeah. Um, so... I think you make a really good point, kind of bringing up the PDR network uh, cert petition, and and that is the the rapid pace at which the law is constantly changing and evolving with respect to the TCPA. And this year has really kind of been a blockbuster when it's coming come to changes in the law. And aside from <laughs> no yeah, kidding. right, okay. So aside from PDR, I mean, we got uh, you know an ACA International. We got some big decisions out of the circuit court, uh, including with Marks uh, from the Ninth Circuit. And so can you share with us kind of what your thoughts are about Marks and the impact on the TCPA that the Ninth Circuit's expansive interpretation of ATDS will have? So Marks is wrong, right? You're here. I I just, uh, you know, I, um, Marks reminds me a lot of Satterfield. 
So mm-hmm. when the, the last time the Ninth Circuit addressed the question of what is an automatic telephone dialing system, it was a, a, an appeal from a grant of summary judgment to a defendant, and the Ninth Circuit kicked it back to the district court again. And that's exactly what they did here. Um, but in this case, they actually talked about the, the definition, and it, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. The statute is not – I don't think it's ambiguous, and I don't think that there's – uh, any reason why you couldn't uh, generate random and sequential telephone numbers and store them for later dialing, which is how I, what I think the statute was intended to cover. Um, there's nothing in the legislative history, which I have looked at over and over and over and over on various cases, there's nothing to suggest that Congress was trying to uh, target the TCPA at any type of dialer. It was targeting a very specific type of dialer. And now Marx has said, well, if, it, if you store numbers and dial them automatically, you're, it's an ATDS. Well, that's your cell phone. Yep. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I have, you, know, you have a speed dial, you have group texting, you have, you know, so, you know, that's very, to me, Marx is just as problematic as the prior FCC interpretation uh, of ATDS. Exactly. It really does kind of bring us back full circle to what you know what the status quo was um at the time the 2015 omnibus was still valid uh and you know what the interesting thing was is is kind of how the ninth circuit went about reaching its decision it's it was i don't want to be uh, overly critical of it but it did seem like there was a bit of uh you know they kind of backed their way into the Mm -hmm. the result there uh and what was really telling is that we had um, a boss uh, kazaruni on to talk about the marx decision after it came down and he had admitted that the court made its decision based on an argument that wasn't even made uh, in the course of the wow. briefing or or argument. So just kind of, I mean, I thought that was really insightful in terms of where the Ninth Circuit's, uh, you know, head was, so to speak, in, in reaching this decision. And I get to some degree where they're coming from that we don't want to make a decision that completely, you know, quote unquote, eviscerates the TCPA. But you know, the statute says what the statute says, and Congress passed what it passed. And I'm with you there, Tonya. I've also taken a look at the legislative history. I, in fact, spent about two or three hours watching old C-SPAN footage of, um, you know, the legislative hearings that occurred prior to the passage of the TCPA. And there was no discussion at all about regulating dialers that dialed from lists. In fact, the scourge that they were clearly trying to regulate at the time was – the, the, truly, the the random number generators, these sequential number generators yep. that were having specific harms that it was inflicting on on folks, and you know, it seemed very clear to me after after spending time, uh, you know, watching that video and marveling at all the awesome '90s uh, uh, fashion styles that um, that <laughs> Congress was not intending to regulate, uh, you know, predictive dialers and 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 the stuff that that the modern day industry uses. Right. And, and, you know, maybe there needs to be a new law, right? I mean, I I think probably what the Ninth Circuit judges were thinking about is if we affirm this, we are basically blessing spam text messages Mm -hmm. that then, you know, then everybody's, you know, I don't want, they're thinking, I don't want to start getting text messages on my phone from companies that I didn't, you know, marketing texts from companies who I didn't uh, agree to receive texts from, and and they didn't want that protection to go away. Yeah. Um, Yeah. But really, that is Congress's job, and if the TCPA has now eliminated random or sequential number dialers, then it succeeded, right? <laughs> it yeah. did what it was supposed to do. Exactly. And there aren't calls to hosp- you know, emergency rooms and 
hospital rooms or tying up every single business uh, number of a business um, that's not happening anymore and that really was what the problem was so now if if that's not the problem anymore but there's a new problem then it's really Congress's job to address the new problem not for the justices and the judges out there to to try and fix it by <laughs> twisting completely the language and intent of the statute. Absolutely. And look, I mean, I think Congress, at least to some degree, recognizes this because in addition to all of the different, you know, judicial uh, developments we've seen, we've seen Congress step in with one curiously named uh, bill after another trying to, you know, essentially change the law to regulate the problem as as it exists today with respect to, you know, quote, you know, so-called robocalls, um, you know, mm-hmm. so whether it's stopping bad robocalls act or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's Congress's recognition that perhaps the TCPA's, as you aptly put it, its job is done. Um, yes. And, and, you know, the FCC is working very hard uh, to try and stop the robocalls. And I applaud them. I, I think, you know, they're doing what they can. It, with the technology the way it is currently, it is so easy to spoof a phone number that you know there are people, there are companies, and most of them, I my guess, are most of them are outside of the United States that are able to just make illegal calls without any repercussion because it's very difficult to find those people. Um, but I I know for sure that the FCC is working with the telephone companies to try and identify. Uh, the, the callers, the real bad actors who are out there, not the you know compliance-minded businesses that are trying to comply with the law, but they just don't know what the heck the law requires anymore. Exactly. I mean that that is such a core problem we've got with the statute, um, and you know the, the the more the laws expanded, I've seen the the greater the actual problem becomes because. Uh, Tonya, I, I have to imagine that you're probably getting those same types of, you know, uh, truly illegal, truly scam calls to your cell phone. I know I get them, you know, uh, if not on a daily basis, at least a few times a week where some random spoofed number is calling and, you know, with uh, some kind of weird pre-recorded message or some guy pretending to be the IRS or, you know, things along those lines. Yep. Well, listen, speaking yeah, of... Everybody the, hates them. They do, they, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so well, well, while we're on the topic of the FCC... Um, you know, we got the, the public notice proceedings. Tell us your thoughts about where you think the FCC is going, um, if you can, if, you've, if you can read the tea leaves for us here with respect to the definition of ATDS. You know, I really have no idea on that one. I mean, I, you know, I know that uh, Commissioner or Chairman Pai and Commissioner O'Reilly had great dissents from the 2015 order. I loved their dissents. <laughs> I read them over and over. They were fabulous. Um, and now, you know, they are the, in the majority. Um, but I wonder how easy it would or difficult it would be to really stick with the plain language of the statute interpretation, given what I imagine is tremendous pressure from consumer groups to not interpret the statute so narrowly that all these calls are, are just going to explode. Um, so I I don't know I am I am an optimist I am an eternal optimist uh, so I am going to to say that I I hope and think it's possible that we'll get an interpretation uh, that is truthful to the language of the statute and that does require the use of a random or sequential number generator to generate the numbers to be dialed either immediately or to be stored and dialed later um, that. 
I believe is the proper interpretation of the statute. But I just I, I know that the FCC is under under the pressure from so many consumers and consumer groups um, that I'm sure they're they're worried about if we do that, what is going to be the backlash? Yeah, and I I, I share those very wise viewpoints with you too. I mean, uh, you know those those dissents were, were fantastic. One would assume that on principle that, you know, pie, uh, you know, might stick to that. But I think against the tide of consumer sentiment and, you know, uh, activity at the FCC, they, they might very well be swimming against the current when it comes to that. Right. Now, on the other hand, I mean, the, the you saw the notice about the reassigned numbers order. Um, and I think it's fabulous that there's going to be a safe harbor for companies who use this database whenever it's created, which is a question in my mind how long it's going to take to create this database of reassigned numbers. But, um, you know, that that safe harbor is something that many, uh, many companies and organizations lobbied for uh, fiercely because it creates an incentive to use it, but it also will hopefully stop these ridiculous lawsuits over calls to reassign numbers. I mean, it's just, it, it, it cannot be the law that you are liable for engaging in speech with somebody who consented to, re, you know, you're trying to reach and you're trying to engage to speak with somebody who consented to be contacted, but you had no idea that the phone number changed hands. And so now you owe the new recipient of the, the number $500. I mean, it just, there's so many problems with that, <laughs> with that view. Um, uh, and I, I, I think that having this reassigned number database is going to be very useful. I am a little concerned about how expensive it will be yeah. to subscribe to it, especially, you know, like I said, I work with a lot of small companies and startup companies, and even, there are vendors out there now who say, you know, we can provide that a similar type of service, and it's just always too expensive. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we'll see how this all unravels. I mean, on the topic of the TCPA being a rapidly evolving area of the law, that reassigned number order just came down like literally, I think it was about two hours ago. Uh, and so, you know, I think we're, we're all diving into it now. But, uh, you know, again, great points. It, we, we, there's at least some safe harbor in there. But it'll be interesting to see how this all shakes out in terms of the actual implementation of the database. Um, operationalizing compliance with the new rules around the safe harbor, and whether or not the database is in fact going to be effective as a means of, you know, uh, um, of, of addressing the problem of calls to reassign numbers and also giving a workable means for, you know, compliant-minded businesses to avoid the sorts of liability that we see now with respect to, you know, like you pointed out, you make one or two reassigned number calls and you're either facing, you know, an individual suit or, or, or you know, in, in a lot of instances, a massive nationwide class action based on a couple of calls that to a reassigned phone number when the business wasn't even, you know, did, had no idea that they were calling a reassigned number. Right, right. And and some of those cases, I mean, it's remarkable that I, I know at least one, there was a, a class certified of reassigned number holders, which... I don't know how that's possible because how do you how do you even identify the members of the class? Yeah. And you know, that's an interesting point in terms of reassigned numbers and class certification. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about the the Rourke case that um, we saw out of the District of Minnesota. Um, what'd you make of that case and and it's it's I thought a fantastic holding that a caller has a right to reasonably rely on the the consent of the prior subscriber. Now, that the contours 
or I suppose the applicability or the contours of that may change now with the new reassigned number database, but I, I'd love to get your thoughts on that opinion as well. So I think it's a great opinion by a common sense judge, and you know, it was nice to read something that that came out on in TCPA that made sense. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, unfortunately, I think that because of the Seventh Circuit's ruling, um, I, I don't know that other court. You know, I, I I fear it will be an outlier, and that most courts are going to follow Judge Easterbrook. Just strict. Go ahead. Sorry. The called party. Called party is the subscriber. Period. Right. Period. Yeah. You know that we common sense is, is a great way to describe it, and uh, you know hopefully we'll we'll see a little bit more of that. I think obviously there's support in that with the FCC's recognition that there's a right to reasonably rely with ACA International. You know, mm -hmm. uh, highlighting that in its own opinion. Now we've got Rourke. It'll be interesting to see if we've got other other courts coming in line with that and also how that kind of plays out with respect to class certification because if you if you really truly do have a right to reasonably rely um, and it is a standard that's kind of evaluated on a case-by-case -case basis well it seems that reassigned number wrong number class actions as difficult as they were to certify based on the status quo you know may have gotten a lot more harder uh, a lot more challenging to certify um, yes, if this if that the Rourke decision is is widely adopted, then then yes, I just despite being a turtle optimist, <laughs> I'm not optimistic on that one. <laughs> no, every court's going to follow it, Tonya. No way, that is the best decision ever, and uh, courts will know, not hesitate to extend it. District of Minnesota, I don't know. <laughs> it's be more persuasive. Yeah, well, well, fantastic. Listen, I think. Uh, well, you know what? Actually, let me go back to one thing you'd mentioned when you started. You, we've got a lot of action. Uh, in the text message space now, uh, text message being equivalent to calls. I mean, do you see any sort of specific impact that some of these developments in the law that we've discussed will have specifically on text message cases? Well, the Marks decision is terrible for text messaging. I think um, you know um, there are a lot of platforms out there, a lot of text messaging platforms that you know, are automated and they send text messages in response to, to certain other action. Mm -hmm. um, and it will make arguing, you know, if you're in a jurisdiction that is bound by marks, it will make the ATDS argument much harder, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, I... Um, I mean, really, text messages, in my mind, there should be a separate law. You know, there were no text messages when the TCPA was, was passed. There were cell phones, they were the size of a small microwave, but <laughs> there were cell phones. Um, but there were, there, there were, text messaging didn't exist, and the statute was not intended for text messaging. Uh, I, I always say, you know, it's interesting that I think the law is much simpler in the EU on text messaging. You know, it's an opt-in regime. You have to opt in, and you have the right to opt out. It's, it's very simple, um, and it, it's very complicated here because of the TCPA. Yeah, I mean, and, and you have... So, sorry, yeah, because, it, because it covers informational messages too. So in the EU, it's all, only if it's marketing you have to get consent. Yeah, if you want if it's informational, I believe you don't. I mean, I'm not an EU lawyer; that is not legal advice. <laughs> Do not rely on that. Um, but I, you know, I from talking to my colleagues, we have a Brussels office, and talking to my colleagues there, it sounded like it's actually much easier to deal with text messaging under the legal regime there than it is here, because here, I mean, you talk to most companies and you say, you need consent 
for opt-in consent for a text message, um, if you're using an auto dialer, but let's just put that aside because for compliance purposes, it's easier just get the consent. Um, and and they say, well, yeah, but we're not doing marketing. Yep. <laughs> Does it matter? Sorry, guys. <laughs> you know, or you know, we're we're calling our customers to do customer services check in and make sure they're happy with our product. Is that like we really we can't call them if they have a cell phone? Yeah, it's a. Uh, you know, well. And it's interesting too. <laughs> you know, you you got just different concerns surrounding text messages. I mean, there's so much more in line with an email or a push notification, you know, from an app or something along those lines versus a call, which I think you've got uh, different concerns when it comes to, you know, uh, privacy or, or whatever underpinnings kind of um, are, are involved with the, with the TCPA. It's just the, the contours are so much different between these two different modes of communication. And, I, and I'm with you there mm-hmm. that, that it, it would make sense to treat them differently. But, you know, the law is what it is right now. The law is what it is, and nothing ever seems to come out of Congress anymore. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, maybe someday there'll be a massive update to the TCPA. But for now, we are we are uh, you know stuck with what we got. Yeah, definitely. Well, still, as we as we pointed out, very interesting, very rapidly evolving area of the law it keeps us all on the toes on our toes all the time. Well, listen, Queen of the TCPA, it was great having you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time here. Uh, and as we always do with all of our guests, we will leave you, uh, we'll, 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 we're going to give you the floor here um, to leave us with any last comments that you might have. Um, and so uh, as we always do, the powerful Womblebond Dickinson platform is, is all yours. What you got for us? Well, I will just leave you with a, a, a hope for um, the new year that the FCC commissioners, uh, Pi and O'Reilly, stick by their dissents um, and do the right thing when it comes to the interpretation of ATDS. So that's, my, that's on my gift list for the holidays. Well, let's hope, uh, let's hope those holiday wishes come true for you and all of us here at TCPLA, Antonia. Thank you again for joining us. Happy holidays. Uh, have a very happy new year, and we'll hope to have you back on soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Well, there you go, TCPA land. Back-to-back interviews with two fantastic guests to end our first season of the Ramble podcast. i got to tell you, folks. I'm exhausted and so very pleased to have been able to break down the PDD uh, and Traced as we did last week and bring you all the updates and everything that we've done throughout the year. Uh, Super proud of ourselves and proud to to have all of you along with us uh, for this great adventure. Uh, What did you folks think of the interview, Nicole? Uh, Grand Duchess, shall I say? So uh, I really like the fact that we had two female I guess, um, you know, I feel like we could count on one hand how many female guests we've had on the podcast. Maybe a, a goal for next year would be to get get more female guests on, uh, I, on the podcast. I wasn't <laughs> expecting the breakdown segment to go there. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll put a premium on that. Thanks, Grand Duchess. And anything else other other than their gender? I mean, anything <laughs> you found useful? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, I was going to say something until you interrupted me. Oh, see, did I just man interrupt you? Is this like perfectly in keeping with this whole gender discussion? Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, oh, well, man. I like how at the end, Tanya, uh, Tonya, I'm sorry, Tonya, um, just, you know, had a very positive uh, outlook, hopefully. Oh, oh. And we lost sorry. the phone. It's okay. Um, for uh, 2019 um, and, uh, you know, just hoping to have a little bit more clarity uh, with the TCPA um, and, yeah, forward looking. 
So looking forward is the theme of the last of all shows, I suppose. Uh, what did you think, uh, Pooja? Well, I especially liked Peggy's piece on the TCP quote-unquote experts. Um, it was interesting, but not surprising how many TCP experts lack the relevant uh, educational experience to qualify as experts. And it's great to know that people like Peggy are out there uh, bringing this all to light. Yeah, I mean, obviously I did the, the Peggy interview and, and our, the Baron did a great job with the Tonya interview, but I've got to agree with you, uh, Queenie. I, I was really stunned, um, kind of taking stock of some of the overstatements that are showing up in people's CVs, in the CVs of experts that we see all the time, mm -hmm. by the mm -hmm. way. Uh, and uh, it was pretty remarkable to kind of get that feedback. Baron, what did you think, man? So uh, I, I, I like Peggy's interview, the, the, the assistance she provides in kind of flushing out some of the pesky plaintiffs, as we may call them, the mm -hmm. professional plaintiffs and um, the arsenal that she's got uh, to help the defense uh, combat, you know, the experts and the uh, routine players in, in TCPA. So that was great. Um, really honored to uh, have done the interview with Tonya. Um, was very pleased to be able to anoint uh, another person into the Royal Court of TCPA land. Uh, and uh, she had some great insight. I mean, it's always really nice to have like a defense lawyer to defense lawyer conversation. We're all more or less on the same page. Uh, and she had some really great insights on some of the, you know, big developments we've had this year. So great, great interview. Well, we, we began this podcast by talking and reminiscing about all of our best and favorite moments over the course of the year. It really is amazing to look back and think about all the, all the great guests that we've had and um, how much insight uh, we've all gleaned, I think, from, from everybody on both sides of the aisle. Uh, and I know for a fact that we're looking forward to doing this again next year. We're going to have uh, probably 30 or maybe even 40 uh, episodes in season two. So this is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, but for now, I guess uh, all journeys must come to an end, uh, and this is the end of, of season one. Uh, and as always, those of you folks that are our clients and listening, uh, we deeply love you. Uh, everybody else, we love you at least a little bit. Uh, and live from the West Coast podcast studio of the uh, of Womble Bond Dickinson. This is two weeks in a row. I've loved this. What, <laughs> what, what firm do I work for? Of Womble Bond Dickinson. This has been the ramble. And I guess since this is our last uh, episode of season one, we're going we're gonna to go out on a, on a different note. We're going to wish all of you a happy holidays, a great Christmas and Hanukkah, and, and really a happy new year. So... Happy New Year, everybody. All right. Happy New Year and uh, happy holidays, listeners. All right. <laughs> oh, this is a little special special music. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next year. Happy hey, holides. Bye, bye, bye. holidays. Bye, everyone. Bye. We're missing jingle bells, but this is cool, too.